crude oil derivatives are everywhere in our life, as they're involved with our day-to-day -day actions and habits, making us dependent on the oil industry, not just for energy. Can you elaborate on the various products derived from crude oil and their applications in different industries? So crude oil is split into a multitude of things in the typical oil and gas industry. They split that into petrol and diesel, which is probably about half of all the crude oil that is produced in the world, gets converted into petrol or diesel because we need that for transportation. We'll now talk about the remaining half. Diesel is obviously also a, an important component within the trucking industry, trucking, shipping industry. But then the remaining half, this is where we've got a highly polluting substance called jet fuel. About 10% of the crude oil production in the world goes towards producing jet fuel or aviation fuel. One of the highly, uh, highly polluting su substances uh, which are ever known. And we also produce what is called as heavy fuel oil that is used uh, for ships. It's also called marine oil or ship oil, whatever names as such. But this is a very heavy substance. And if it spills into the ocean, it leaves a very black kind of a mark all over. And a lot of marine life goes away in case of any spillage of heavy fuel oil. But other than that, there is a whole world of lubricants which come from basically from the from the crude oil, right? Lubricants are used in industry in various processes. It is used in transportation. All of our engines need lubrication, etc. Almost 90% of the lubricant usage actually comes from fossil fuels. There are some other uh, plant-based lubricants that are also being used, like castor oil being used as a, as a highly viscous substance. So it is definitely used as a lubricant, but these are very small in, in quantities in comparison to the amount of um, petroleum-based lubricants that are being used. And there is then a whole world of petrochemicals. So these are chemicals that are used in industry as well as in, uh, in our common day-to-day -day lives. But let's focus only on, on the industry part. There are adhesives, there are plastics, there are solvents, there are, are various materials that are used for packaging. And uh, the pharmaceutical industry takes a lot of the petrochemicals as well. Agriculture is another major consumer of petrochemicals uh, because the fertilizers are essentially petrochemicals as such. So those are all the components that come out of crude oil. They're just one product that comes out and then it gets split into multiple things. Okay, so industrial processes and transportation keep oil demand high. But what is the impact that, but what is the impact that all this actually has on us? What derivates do we see with our own eyes every day? What is that we are in contact with the most? We know that the pharmaceutical industry also uses oil derivatives, for example, to produce pills. This is what capsules are made of. Transportation, even if electric, is dependent on oil for the production of the electricity itself and needed to move trains or cars, for example. We also know that cleaning products come from the petrochemical industry, and so do clothes. 
And so I wonder, is this intimate closeness with oil any bad for our health? Is this concerning anyhow? There are a number of health issues with using petrochemical products as part of our general life, right? So let me probably start with some of the cleaning liquids and sprays and stuff that we use in the house. These contain what are called as volatile organic compounds and they are known to irritate the airways. So people who suffer with hay fever, people who suffer with asthma, they do have health problems that are caused by indoor air that is polluted with these kind of chemicals. Let's start with that. Then coming to clothing, the plastic that we wear as shirts and trousers and whatever, I call it plastic. I refuse to call it by other names. It's my way of talking. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. And essentially, the plastic that, that we wear, it doesn't let the, keeps the body warm to a certain extent, does not let it, let the temperature come down that easily. Continued wearing of these kind of materials does cause skin-related problems. Does it cause anything else? I don't know. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to put a, put a specify about that. But uh, as somebody who's had problems with eczema in the past, I've tried to consciously avoid any undergarments or socks that contains plastic. So that's the bare minimum I can do. So if it's to do with a vest or if it's boxes or socks, or gloves, etc. I prefer a natural material, right? Woolen gloves are a lot better. Socks, that is 100% cotton socks are a lot better, right? That's the stuff that I can do. So can I go and demand that I would only wear cotton and I wouldn't get anything else? Unfortunately, the choice is not much. You're not left with that much choice in terms of what you can do. So then coming to medicines, I don't have a choice there. If it comes hmm. to Maybe multivitamins, I can say, okay, fine, this contains plastics, contains petrochemicals in there. I can say, no, I don't want to take this. But when it comes to a prescription medicine, I'll have to follow the doctor's advice, right? I don't have a choice in terms of what to do. Yes, there are risks with every medication that we take. And fossil fuel components going in and being part of our system, definitely, what is it and how does it affect us? These are very large topics on their own, we'll probably need a separate episode, probably getting in a qualified doctor to talk about essentially these areas. But yeah, unfortunately, as common citizens, we don't have a choice there. Some of the things that we can do is essentially looking at food labels, for instance. Let's talk about it. Why does a bag of pasta contain seven, eight ingredients? It shouldn't, isn't it? It should just have... You mean the actual packaging or no, the pasta? No, the pasta itself has got eight ingredients in it. And, you know, it, it feels as if it's come out of a lab, not a kitchen. So if you look at noodles or soup, for instance, if you buy the, if you buy the soup, right, and if you bother to read the label at the back, there are chemical components over there as ingredients, which I don't understand. I don't think we ever used any of these when we made soup at home. We put tomatoes, we put uh, you know, carrots, put some cheese on top of it. We will probably use cream as part of the, part of the soup. We'll put some salt, we'll put pepper, what other spices. 
But other than that, there are four lines of, you know, probably chemistry textbook items in, in a bowl of soup, which I think we've never used in the kitchen. That comes down to looking at the food label and you know, asking, do we really need this? Instead of this, can I probably buy my own tomatoes and make my own soup? That's the choice that, that I'm thinking of. Of course, we all have situations where we are working until 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock or whatever, and then we need to have a quick meal and we are getting something of that sort. Are we left with any other choices other than getting these petrochemicals as part of our, uh, our meal? I'm not even talking about the packaging here, right, Francisco? I can take out the packaging and I can throw it away. It's the actual food itself. Noodles, for instance. Noodles, if you look at the ingredients of standard noodles that's available in the UK, any brand, any supermarket, own brand, etc. There are at least seven, eight lines of ingredients in it. And those and the, and those could probably be a, com a combination of preservatives, yeah, for example, yeah. which yes. are very, I'm sure I'm very frequent in every sort yes. of food. Yes. There is so much of preservatives and so much of, uh, there is emulsifier and there is gelatin and this and that. And so many items in just, just one packet of noodles, right? When we make noodles at home, we don't actually put so many things into it, right? But similarly with bread, right? I would say bread here in the UK is a lot better. But if you, uh, if you look at it from a, Let's just take bread and milk alone. Basics, right? Just take bread and milk alone. Here in the UK, you will get bread that will last three days or four days. The best before date would be three or four days. And you, if you keep it in the bread box, it will probably have fungus after four days, right? So you'll have to throw it. Similar case with milk, right? When you buy milk in the supermarket, it says best before date is like four or five days away. You travel across the pond, go to America, Milk will not expire for a month. Bread will not expire for a month. Yeah. So how can you get milk to stay that longer? I'm not even talking about the long-life milk. The normal fresh milk that you buy does not expire until the end of the month. How is that even possible? Look at the food label. There are so many items in there other than milk. What do you need in that bottle? Yeah, the bottle is plastic. I can't recycle. Let's come to that separately. But inside that, it was supposed to be milk. And that milk is supposed to be just milk. That's it. M-I-L-K. But instead of that, there are so many other items in there. Yeah. The, the widespread use of preservatives and other chemical compounds in the food industry, which I believe are primarily used to prevent spoilage, natural decomposition, also strikes me as just how close is to us all. This just highlights the extensive role of crude oil in our daily lives and the larger context of its consumption. And talking about something that is very, very present in our day-to-day -day life, one is cement, which also comes with a significant consumption of water. We are surrounded by it. And so, uh, is there an alternative to cement? Can we find a material that serves a similar purpose but is produced in a more sustainable manner? Yeah. I think when we look at cement, that uh, manufacturing process is at least 150 years old, right? There was this uh, area in the south of England uh, called Portland where 
this particular type of limestone was available and they heated it up and they created this particular uh, component, this particular product called cement. We still do exactly the same thing. We use limestone and we heat it up with uh, a certain set of additives and then that heat comes from coal or from oil. So one of the first things to look at is how can I change that manufacturing process? So mm. number one is a lot of the emissions in the cement industry comes from this industrial heating process, the furnace where the limestone is heated up to around 1,300 degrees or something. So if you take out the coal-fired furnace or the oil-fired furnace, in some cases there is a, comp there is a, a fuel called as or emulsion, which is from oil sands, basically in Canada and Venezuela, basically you get these oil sands. It is a bituminous material that is used uh, in order to fire these furnaces. We don't have those in the UK as far as I know, but we used to use or emulsion earlier. I think until the 90s or late 90s, we were still using or emulsion in our power plants. So if we take that industrial heat and convert it, that particular furnace, convert it to an electric arc furnace. There you go. In one shot, you can reduce nearly 50% of the emissions from the cement process. 50%. Just one intervention that needs to be done. Take out this one, put an electric arc furnace. Electric arc furnaces have been around for 100 years. It is not new technology. It is viable. It is not very expensive in comparison to the cost of operation and the cost of maintenance of these coal-fired furnaces. You take this out, put it in, and switch your electricity supply to that furnace, also to renewables. There you go. 50% of your emissions in the process managed off-site completely. That is... And you would have the same energy same out of energy that process. Electric arc furnace can also reach 1,350 degrees. So you can produce uh, cement pretty much the same way. Right? You're not changing the fundamental uh, quality of the cement. Uh, it is still exactly the same. right? So you're just going to take this out and you're going to put a different source of heat. And you're going to switch the electricity supply. If you're buying a supply from elsewhere, you're going to switch to a renewable energy supplier. So scope one and scope two is essentially taken care of. Then the other thing that you can also do in the, in the cement industry is I told you about something that needs to be added to this limestone in order as a catalyst it needs to be added and it needs to be heated so that we produce this material called the cement, right? There are alternatives that are available here which produce what they call as a low carbon cement. So you are actually changing the raw material there. And currently in the market, there are a number of companies that are producing low carbon or actually they call it zero carbon cement. But what they are doing is that they supply this to contractors who mix it with the normal cement that they are buying. So the high carbon mm -hmm. cement that they are buying, I shouldn't be saying normal because it feels as if I'm normalizing the fossil fuel-based cement. There's about 20% additive that has been used in various UK settings so far. So which means that 
in the construction side as well, you can reduce the emissions. You can reduce the usage of fossil fuel-based products to a certain degree, right? What needs to happen is that when this additive is used, right, uh, there are lab and I would say research-led testing that has been done on the strength of these materials. And it has been proved that it is fundamentally fine, right? There is no difference in terms of the strength and the quality of the cement when it has had an additive of up to 20% of zero carbon cement. But what needs to happen is that uh, we need to have large-scale adoption and we need to have large-scale testing before that adoption happens. So mm. even if it is 20% additive, even if it is 5% additive, it is still a big gain, essentially. Even if it is not 100% zero-carbon cement, that is an ideal world. Today, if you can start with a small mix with the cement, that is still a that, that is still a big win, essentially. This is just by looking at how polluting yes. is uh, the traditional cement yes. that we use. Correct. It's just yes. so polluting that even if you substitute five percent yes. of it with something that is more sustainable, yeah. that is still a big change. Absolutely. Like still has a like a noticeable Absolutely. impact, basically. Absolutely. Still has a noticeable impact in there. Another one is steel as well. Steel is also highly carbon intensive manufacturing process and the companies that have now switched uh, to electric arc furnaces there as well uh, energy efficiency related improvement as well as carbon capture has been tried within the steel industry and we will be talking about this in more detail as part of our report as well where we are covering some of the case studies there's a uh, there's a certain steel industry steel factory or I can say a group of factories in Netherlands where electric arc furnace has been implemented across these factories, across these steel plants, essentially. And it has been working successfully for the last five years. So again, this is not new and unproven technology. It is proven technology. It is something that other manufacturers have used and they have tried it out. It is capital intensive. Of course, it is capital intensive. It's not going to come for, for a few millions. It's going to be tens of millions, definitely, if you need to, uh, you need to replace it. But uh, it is financially viable in order to replace that. Similar case also with, I would say, with insulation as well, right? As part of the construction mm -hmm. industry, right? Insulation is a major material uh, that is being used. Because without insulation, we can't tackle the winters and essentially in the northern hemisphere, right? So it is absolutely essential for us. There are natural fibers being used as part of insulation. There are trials that have been done and a number of new build properties have used uh, natural fibers. Instead of petrochemical-based products that were used, the foam that was being used, now there are basically natural fibers that are being used. The natural fibers are plant-based. There's coconut fiber, there's basically the sugarcane fiber being used. There is, uh, there is husk that is being used as part of insulation. There is also state-changing material that is being tried out as well. When it gets too cold, this material will turn into a solid stuff. And mm. it, it will essentially retain the warmth inside the house. When it starts becoming warm, 
it will become a liquid and it will start absorbing the heat it will keep the house cool essentially that's an example of state changing material that's being used as insulation as well what happens here is that when you use uh, when you air seal the house and put a lot of insulation around it it's it's fantastic from an epc perspective but then when the summers come in it's just inhabitable inside the house right you'll have to open all the windows still there is not much of ventilation whatever you'll have to literally sit in the garden there's no other way that you can't stay inside the house so that's possible that is again uh, financially viable some contractors have already tried it there are some new builds in the uk where it has been implemented so we are not talking about a completely different market we're not talking about things that are in the future we're talking about stuff that's already being done so what is in your opinion needed for this big switch to happen for all the companies that are involved to basically switch from one process to another and how do you see uh, is it a big financial challenge yes. to be ahead of those entrepreneurs or the players in the industry and what do you think would be uh, helix contribution to this sure. change in process and the approach to it a majority of companies that we've been talking to have some level of transition plans so these transition plans would say that i want to be net zero by 2050 i want to do 30% reduction in emissions by 2030 and etc etc but then the question is how while that sort of numbers have been put up and it is being published in a sort of open web and whatever people can download their annual reports they can look at their sustainability reports the disclosures etc and then they can ask them questions how are you going to do this fundamentally if you are saying that it's going to be a 35% reduction in emissions and it's a it's a cement manufacturer saying this how do you plan to achieve this 35% what are the steps that you are going to take that is where i think there is a major gap because these interventions are not clearly laid out by most of the companies and again i'm not blaming everyone here there is a fundamental challenge as well right majority of the of the work that needs to be done here needs to come from the core manufacturing business itself right it is not from somebody sitting outside of the manufacturing business it has to come from the core manufacturing business and most of our sustainability officers are not there they are sitting within finance and they are doing some disclosures and reporting etc right we would need a unit within sustainability that sits within the core business process observes and identifies these interventions takes it to the sustainability officer for them to evaluate and then bring it in front of the board of directors and the company's leadership so our platform essentially helps them do that helix platform essentially helps them do that right so they can first of all look at their life cycle uh, we have a process called as life cycle analysis they can look at the scope 1 2 3 emissions then they can look at how to create a decarbonization strategy 
So within that decarbonization strategy, they can, gen they can then choose which are the interventions that I want to take. And for each intervention, the platform will then ask you questions in terms of how you have determined the viability of this particular process. And you can spread out the cash flows in the system and you can then determine which among the interventions is going to give you the best financial results. This can then be taken up to the company's leadership, the CEO and the board of directors in order for them to assess and see the clear recommendation. So if it is a cement company and they want to do an electrification exercise and they want to switch to renewable energy, what is the impact on my balance sheet? What is the impact of my P&L? If I structure this as a separate project, meaning I create a small project company, I can run it as a project, how do I finance it? What are my options in terms of financing? On the platform, we also offer a mechanism to convert the project debt into a bond and then issue it in the market. So that allows them to go through the entire process right from identifying the steps that need to be taken for their transition plan. Yeah, 2050 goal, fantastic. You want to reduce 35% emissions by 2030, fantastic. Again, we want them to align to SBTI. This is Science-Based Targets Initiative. It's a very clear-cut process and there are no loopholes within the SBTI process. I can't say no loopholes, I would say limited loopholes. And it is possible for them to put in more near-term realistic goals, saying, I can uh, implement this electrification project and thereby reduce 30% of my company's emissions. And it is going to take me 10 million pounds in order to do this. That, when it is presented to the board of directors, makes a lot more meaning. And when you say, I can reduce 30% of emissions, the financial benefit over there is that in industries such as cement, steel, chemicals, etc., what we have seen is that the reduction in emissions has a proportionate reduction in the operating cost. So when the sustainability officer goes to the CEO and to the board of directors, he or she is going to give them a message saying, hey, look, I can reduce the emission, but at the same time, I will reduce our operating cost as well, which means that there is more return on equity for the shareholders. And if you're listening to this and you're a shareholder, you should be demanding this from the companies in which you have invested into. Don't look at your share as just a trading opportunity. You are really investing in the business, even if it is just one share or 10 shares, you're actually investing in the future of that business. And you can definitely take action on this. You can definitely expect the management of that business to come back to you with a reasonable transaction plan. What is the investment involved? What is the benefits that you're going to get? That's now from the corporate side, that is exactly what Helix does. The other side of Helix is obviously to work with climate solutions, work with companies that implement these, uh, these sort of interventions like electric arc furnace, etc., and also to work with institutional investors where they have the power to expect corporates to make this change.
and that corporate engagement platform that, that we've spoken about in our previous episodes as well. Awesome. This is interesting too. We went from just showing, depicting the size of crude oil yes. and how much crude oil is used. So to have an idea of the actual impact of crude oil in our lives, but also in the processes we have in place in, in various yes. um, industries. Um, and we didn't cover transportation at all, which we can save for you know, another chapter sure. yeah. of this crude oil fossil fuel um, units of content we are creating. But we can already see that there is a lot to, to uncover and there is a lot that could be done. And it's always, tr it's always interesting to learn how most of the interventions could be done just on how companies operate and how they organized. And in that kind of like flux of information that goes between company units, if those would be organized differently, processes would be different Absolutely. and probably some specific but very important information would be brought to the right people, which could be CEOs or people looking at balance sheets or investors that are behind companies. And it's always also interesting to see how uh, people could take action right. just by uh, investing in a company, buying one yes. share, uh, which could go for not much. It's fascinating how we progressed from simply visualizing the extent of crude oil usage to understanding its actual impact on our life and also its presence in various industries. There is clearly much to uncover and significant potential for improvements. What's particularly intriguing is learning how impactful changes can be achieved through modifications in company operations and organization structures. Efficient information flow within company divisions can lead to more effective processes. And also, it's, it's always interesting to see how individuals can influence this dynamics through investment actions. Even with just a few pounds investments in a business or another, probably. A couple of pounds for most companies. A lot of them are yeah, actually pennies exactly. as well. We are not, right? Yeah, yeah. We are not talking about like yes. big tech shares or it's yes. not that kind of, uh, yeah, expenditure that needs to be done. It's, it's just interesting to see uh, that there is a sort of cycle that could be ignited in order to make things happen. And it's interesting to see there are players like Helix that are in the field just to do that. So just quickly, so what is that people can go and look up? Is elix.earth? Yeah, that's correct. Is that a sort of way to get in touch yes. as well? Yes, or? that is that is a transition finance report that is coming up. They can request for a copy of the report on our website. There's also a link that is available on our website to connect with us, a 30-minute call. Uh, they want to share their thoughts, views on this, tell us understand more about the product. If you want to come work with us, please drop a note on our website, the email address over there. It's hello at helix.earth. You can send an email to us if you want to come work with us, if you want to invest in, in Helix, or if you want to refer a client to us, please drop us an email or use the link on our, uh, on our website to just set up a 30-minute call. Excited just by the sound of it. Thank you for sharing your knowledge on this specific topic. Uh, moving on. The other elephant in the room, as I was mentioning before, is transportation, yes. which we'll cover in the next chap 